You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. A big step today toward dealing with BC's doctor shortage. The province has reached a groundbreaking new payment model. It's being described by physicians as one of the best ever negotiated. Richard Zussman has the details. A treatment for a healthcare system under stress. It is by far the best agreement negotiated for physicians in Canada this year. And I believe it is one of the best that has ever been negotiated here in BC. A new deal with doctors and a seismic shift to the way family doctors are compensated, dealing with concerns of rising rents and no pay to cover administration. Family doctors will now get paid for all time spent with patients, including direct and indirect patient care, including a range of medically complex cases, and for how many patients a doctor has. This will mean better care for patients together. That was the principal goal of the Ministry of Health and the government of BC. That was the principal goal in all of this work together. In order to qualify, full-time family doctors must provide 1,680 hours of care per year, serving 1,250 patients of average complexity, including 5,000 encounters or visits a year, with compensation soaring from $250,000 per year on average to $385,000 per year. My initial reaction was, wow, like, it seems to address everything we've been asking for. Some family doctors are saying this salary bump has already encouraged them not to leave the system. And the province is also hoping it means some who work in hospital will go back to being a family doctor. But what's unclear is how many doctors this will add or how many of the nearly one million British Columbians without a family doctor We'll get one. We need details. What matters is the outcomes. And it's one thing to make an announcement. It's another thing to implement it. The funding model, no silver bullet. Part of a larger suite of changes. This includes giving pharmacists power to prescribe, pairing family doctors with nurse practitioners and nurses, and by next summer, creating a provincial rostering system to pair people currently without a doctor. You're going to see a system that responds better to people that builds out the number of family doctors and allows people to, uh, to access them by a provincial system. Family doctors yeah. optimistic. These <laughs> changes will take their profession off life support. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. That's not the only deal to tell you about. BC teachers have a new contract to vote on, one the union says will take members from being among the lowest paid in the country to some of the highest paid. Kylie Stanton has more on what both sides are saying about the tentative deal and what happens next. All right, so what do you think, Tiffany, at the back? After several years in the classroom, never really knowing what was coming next, BC teachers have a new tentative agreement on the table. It is consistent with the public sector negotiating mandate and I would say it's a very positive outcome for members and school districts. The BCTF notified its 49,000 members of the development in an internal email saying we reached this tentative agreement on Friday after several long days of negotiations this week and more than 50 days at the table since February. We've just received it last night so we're going to spend a little time going through it all, seeing what it means, uh, what it means for our members. Salaries are set to increase roughly 13.75% over the next three years, meaning new members will see up to an $8,500 hike in that time, while teachers at the top of their wage grids will be making 10 to 13 and a half thousand more per year. 
Some other gains include 10 additional minutes of prep time for elementary, improvement to benefits like counseling and glucose monitors, enhanced pregnancy leave, and better professional development funding. It just to me, it really shows how much money is on the table when other things like class size and composition don't get in the way. The BCTF president, Clint Johnston, was not available for comment. In a tweet, the union did address the challenging classroom conditions, but called out the BC government and school districts to do more, saying we can't fix these problems on our own. I'm hopeful that, uh, that this will get ratified just like all the others have been ratified. The agreement is similar to the one the BCGEU recently voted on. It passed by only 53%. And while teachers have seen their fair share of labour disputes in the past, the goal this time around was to provide some stability moving forward. And while the parties pushed forward their own positions, uh, it was always respectful and very collaborative, so we are thankful for that. The ratification vote will take place November 16th to 18th. Kylie Stanton, Global News. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with a look at the overall labor picture in this province. Uh, we're talking about 184 contracts, Keith, covering nearly 400,000 workers. Where do things stand? Things stand pretty good. I have to say I was quite surprised when the TF last night sent out that bulletin. They've had a history of trouble at the negotiating table, but kudos to them for getting this done. It's just the latest in a series of successful negotiations uh, so far involving major unions in B.C. I don't think everybody saw a few months ago just this rapid round of success. So here's a review of where we're at with those contract negotiations. Of course, heading the list of those who have been either uh, settled or ratified is the BCTF, the Doctors of B.C., both announced today, QPK to 12, support support workers, BCGU, HU, and UBC QP Local. But there's still work to be done on some other major sets of negotiations, notably the BC Nurses Union, the Health Sciences Association, which are health technicians and technologists, and various post-secondary unions. So about half the people covered by this set of negotiations have already settled or ratified contracts. That's very good news. In fact, it's useful to compare where we're at right now in BC, where Ontario is at. On Friday, QP QP support staff there are set to go on strike. The Doug Ford government has now tabled legislation forbidding them to do that, imposing a contract and outlining a series of very expensive fines. Individuals could be fined $4,000 a day. QP could be fined uh, $5 million a day. The numbers are going to add up very, very quickly there. So again, it's a showdown between public sector unions there and the Doug Ford, Doug Ford government. It's not happening in BC, so fingers crossed the success mm -hmm. keeps going. Yeah, things looking uh, pretty contentious over in Ontario for sure. Thanks for that, Keith. The trial of the outgoing Surrey mayor on public mischief charges got underway today. Doug McCallum was charged after alleging a woman with the Keep the RCMP in Surrey group ran over his foot. It happened more than a year ago when a South Surrey save on foods. And Catherine Urquhart reports it began with an intense exchange between the two. Outgoing Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum arrives at Surrey Provincial Court. It is day one of his public mischief trial. He pleads not guilty. Debbie Johnstone is a key witness in the case. In September 2021, McCallum alleged she drove over his foot at a Save on Foods parking lot. She clipped my knee and, and my bottom leg and then ran over my foot at the same time and then took off. At the time, Johnstone was collecting signatures aimed at keeping the RCMP in Surrey. 
During her testimony, Johnstone said she was in her convertible Mustang when she saw McCallum. She told Special Prosecutor Richard Fowler there was a verbal confrontation, one that included some rather salty language. Johnstone testified that she called him a scaly-faced mother effer and I told him F you a few times, along with you're evil. When asked if she ever called McCallum a S-head, Johnstone answered, oh, probably. Under cross-examination by high-profile defense counsel Richard Peck, Johnstone denied she had been attempting to intimidate McCallum. CCTV footage is also part of the evidence before Judge Reg Harris. It appears to show the two in the parking lot, then McCallum walking away with no sign of a limp. A member of the RCMP is also due to testify in the criminal case, which is scheduled to last seven days. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Well, so far, Doug McCallum's legal fees have been paid by the city of Surrey, but the incoming mayor says that's not going to continue, and she's seeking legal opinion about whether they can recoup the money that's already been spent. As Aaron MacArthur tells us, that could lead to a protracted court battle. No matter how the trial turns out, Surrey taxpayers will not have to foot Doug McCallum's legal bills. Incoming Mayor Brenda Locke campaigned on making the man she replaced pay for his own defense. And before she's even sworn in, she's following through on that promise. The public was loud and clear. They do not want to pay for Mr. McCallum's legal fees. Doug McCallum's legal bills are significant. Locke says she knows the number, but can't disclose it. McCallum sparing no expense, retaining one of Canada's most high-profile and high-priced law firms to handle the case. Richard Peck, most recently acting for Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. City Councillor Linda Annis has been opposed to taxpayers footing this bill since charges were first approved. Doug McCallum has claimed all along he was on city business when he parked at the South Surrey Save-On Foods. He was there on a Saturday doing grocery shopping, and I don't know about you, but grocery shopping certainly isn't the line of duty for a city councillor or for a mayor. All in favour. Legally, there is precedent for taxpayers to fund the defence of elected officials. Surrey has a pre-existing bylaw on the books passed in 2006 that lays out who is covered. But according to lawyers who specialize in municipal law, that indemnity is an absolute. It only applies to action taken in the course of day-to-day -day duties. The charge in this case is public mischief. Doug McCallum accused of making a false statement to police. So it's very difficult to draw a line between false police report and that being any part of a person's performance of their duties or their functions. Even if taxpayers are off the hook for expenses going forward, the money that has already been spent may prove more difficult to extract. And while none of the allegations have been proven in court, Brenda Locke still exploring the city's options, including involving the courts again. Aaron McCarthy, Global News. A closer look at a traumatic encounter outside a Canadian tire store in 2016. Police forced to shoot a man with a knife who attacked employees and an officer. What to expect from the coroner's inquiry next on the News Hour. Oh, yeah. 
Halloween in the halls of the legislature. How your provincial politicians are celebrating today. That's coming up on the news hour. And Vancouver firefighters hit by vandals while they were on the job. How it put other citizens at risk too coming up. Right now, though, it was a violent incident at an East Vancouver Canadian tire that ended with police shooting and killing the suspect. An investigation determined officers' actions were justified. And now, nearly six years later, a coroner's inquest is looking into the moments leading up to the death of Daniel Peter Rintoul. First, though, a warning. Some viewers might find details of this story disturbing. Canadian Tire security video showing what led up to this deadly encounter back in 2016 was played at a coroner's inquest into the death of Daniel Rintoul. You see Rintoul head to the gun's counter with a can of bear spray. An employee testified Rintoul wanted the case open. At uh, which point one of the other associates asked him which one. Then he deployed the bear spray into our faces. Um, I got hit in the face, was able to cover my face up, uh, kind of hide it. At which point he came around the desk, smashed the glass with something heavy. Glass fell down on me. I fled the scene, um, tried to tell some customers what was happening and, and to get away. In the video, another worker starts hitting Rintoul with a long gun. He grabs it, slashes the worker across the face with a knife before the worker runs away. I heard the scream when it happened. I didn't know that's what happened. And, and when I was running away, I did follow the trail of blood. So I assumed somebody was, was hurt. I didn't know who at the time, though. Rintoul eventually takes an elderly man hostage. He walks out the exit, leaving the man behind. In a confrontation with police outside the Grandview Highway location, Rentoul stabbed an officer. He was shot multiple times and died. Via video from Calgary, his sister testified he struggled in school and was bullied. He was homeless for a year and would give his gloves and toques to others. She said his hugs would crush you, but they were amazing. It has always surprised me and bothered me that he decided to go out in the violent manner that he did, that he thought the only way he could end his pain was by causing someone else pain. That wasn't him. On Tuesday, the jury will hear from the worker who was stabbed. The inquest wraps up in a week. A jury will later make recommendations on how to prevent deaths in similar circumstances. Grace Key, Global News. A new warning tonight about a high-risk sex offender who will be living somewhere in Metro Vancouver. Sean Joshua Deacon has a lengthy criminal history for offenses against children dating back to 1988. He's six feet tall, 284 pounds with gray hair. He's been released under a number of conditions, including not to possess any weapons, have access to the Internet, or be in contact with anyone under the age of 16. The Public Safety Ministry is not saying where Deacon will be living but a similar alert issued in April indicated he was residing in Abbotsford. Coming up, a cancer patient with more questions than answers. My tumors are growing. Um, I feel it every day as the pain increases. Eight months after she first noticed symptoms, why she's still waiting for a treatment plan. Also tonight, pubs get to stay open a lot later for World Cup soccer, but there's a catch that's coming up. Clearing stages of a crash just past the north end of the Arthur Lang Bridge on the Vancouver side at Granville and 58th Avenue with crews on scene. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center.
A cancer patient is speaking out tonight about the frustrations she's been facing while navigating BC's healthcare system. She noticed the first symptoms of stage 3 neck cancer months ago, but as Kamal Kuramali tells us, there's still no plan to treat it. There is a number of positive notes here. And this it's been a growing concern for Farah Kruger. My tumors are growing. Um, I feel it every day as the pain increases. A terrifying eight-month journey diagnosed with skin cancer and trying to navigate a healthcare system bogged down in delays. She's still left with no treatment plan. I feel like there's potential for it to become worse and my treatment options to diminish as time goes on. And that's my greatest fear. It all began in February. Kruger noticed a lump behind her ear. She had surgery to remove it in June, but a month later she noticed other areas had also become swollen. There's about five uh, lymph nodes in this area and three of them have tested positive for cancer. Several more tests had to be done, each one requiring a lengthy wait. Now, three months later, another holdup, this one while waiting for the BC Cancer Agency to give the go-ahead for a PET scan. Without it, she can't get surgery. Things are coming to a point where changes have to happen. BC healthcare professionals have been calling on the province to create better working environments for doctors and nurses. We're also going to be moving forward with a 10-year cancer plan that you're going to see soon to address some of those increases in demand. In each of the last two budgets, there were very significant increases in the BC Cancer Agency budget. But time is something Farrah Kruger doesn't have. I think it's crucial that people know the type of delays that are happening. And in a situation such as myself, it really could be life or death. And I don't think that's acceptable. Kamal Karamali, Global News. A disturbing incident at a Vancouver fire hall that serves the downtown east side. Someone slashed the tires on the personal vehicles of several members. Firefighters at the number two fire hall on Main and Powell were the targets. It happened last Wednesday. The crew got back from a number of calls to find their vehicles damaged. Later that night, one of the fire trucks had its tire slashed as well, putting it out of service until it could get fixed. They had up to 40 runs uh, that night uh, on shift and came back from one of their calls uh, out serving the public and came back to the fire hall uh, exhausted um, and saying their, their personal vehicles uh, damaged. So really disheartening uh, for the crews, really hard to see that when uh, working hard up all night in one of the busiest challenging halls in, in Canada Vancouver Fire Rescue says the firefighters are on the hook for the damages to their personal vehicles. The VPD is investigating. And if you get caught setting off fireworks in Vancouver tonight, it could cost you a lot. Vancouver Fire and Rescue says no one has applied for a permit this year. So any fireworks you see or hear are illegal. Firefighters will be out patrolling responding to complaints and they could be issuing tickets of $1,000 to anyone caught selling, discharging, or possessing fireworks. The ban has been in place for the past couple of years, and this year, firefighters are taking it more seriously. The crews will be uh, observing fireworks. We're going to report it to our inspectors. Inspectors are going to go out uh, and either confiscate, fine, or both uh, to the people um, lighting off fireworks. If you feel you want to report fireworks in Vancouver tonight, you can call 311. If you see a fire caused by fireworks, of course, 
you should call 911. Coming up, Ukraine under attack. Russia destroys the water and power supply to millions, while the international community works out a deal to get food to a population growing, going hungry. And what Ottawa's former police chief said on the stand at the Emergencies Act inquiry today. From the stories we need to know to a look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. Good evening. Still slow for traffic on Highway 1 through Burnaby. There's a new crash eastbound after Willingdon uh, in the left lane with emergency crews on scene. Take on any tough jobs this season like a pro with the 2022 Sierra 1500 Elevation. Visit your local GMC dealer and drive yours home today. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. For the first time in months, residents in central Kyiv were running for their lives as the Russian military targeted critical infrastructure across the Ukrainian capital. Millions have been cut off from the basic necessities of life. While concern is growing around the world over Moscow walking away from a deal to keep agricultural supplies moving out of the region, Reggie Cicchini has more. This week started in Ukraine like so many others, amid a fresh wave of aerial missiles. This round striking at the heart of the country. They want to freezing the whole population in our hometown. It's, it's genocide. It's no, another word. Kyiv's mayor steadfastly rebuked Russia's claims that military facilities were struck, since water and power was knocked out to millions, forcing residents to queue for drinking water. No one we will hit them back, not the other way around, says this woman. Well, the bottles are empty, hearts aren't. This resident saying he can still line up for water, but it's the people who are dying that bothers him most. It wasn't just Kyiv that bore the brunt of this latest assault. In Kharkiv, missiles knocked out power, stranding commuters underground. I'm outraged and angry, says this resident. I feel hatred to all of what is happening. Flickering lights and fleeting water supplies becoming further signs of Russia's scorched earth campaign. Meanwhile, from the air to the water, vessels filled with agricultural products are still moving out of the Black Sea and being inspected as they move through Istanbul, despite Russia pulling out of a Turkish-UN brokered agreement. The agreement has made a significant uh, difference by allowing exports of Ukraine's grain to the global markets. Some of the poorest and hardest-hit nations dependent on these exports will now receive food, but for how long? remains unclear as this war's toll continues to be felt far beyond Ukraine's borders. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly appeared under cross-examination today, questioning his leadership during the anti-pandemic restrictions, the protest that jammed the capital last winter. Slowly was on the defensive today about his approach to planning and policing the protest before it got out of control. Global's Kyle Benning has more. You were pretty concerned that you would lose your job and be blamed for what had happened. Absolutely not, sir. 
okay? And what you were looking for was to blame somebody else. Absolutely not, sir. Okay. Ottawa's former police chief had to defend his time leading the police force from his former employer as it criticized Peter Slowly's actions during the so-called Freedom Convoy. David Mijakovsky looked to present Slowly as a chief who was not reading emails, using aggressive language towards his deputies and officers, and looked to pin the blame on others. You at some point decided that you could blame Deputy Chief Bell at the time for not planning for this event. That is absolutely incorrect, sir, and I really take offense to that notion. Thank you. Slowly denied the claims and referred to miscommunications from his own words, as well as those from within the Ottawa Police Service. He stepped down as chief on February 15th, the day after the Prime Minister invoked the Emergencies Act. Earlier in the inquiry, Ontario Provincial Police officers spoke about the dysfunction among management within the Ottawa Police Service as it tried to control public safety around the convoy. They were in crisis mode, and in crisis mode, they, I did not feel that they were using the intelligence to look at the broader event to see about how they could dismantle this event peacefully. Deputy Chief Patricia Ferguson took notes on Slowly's candor during meetings, even saying at one point he suggested outside police forces were not there to help and were at the hands of their, quote, political masters. But I'm just amazed at the amount of liberties that an acting deputy chief, a superintendent, relatively newly promoted superintendent, would take in terms of interpreting my intentions, but none of this is accurate. He noted that he has never seen a police officer take notes on their chief or a fellow officer to this editorial standard in his 30 years of policing. The inquiry continues on Tuesday with testimony from protest organizers. Kyle Benning, Global News. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe has apologized for the throne speech appearance of convicted killer Colin Thatcher last week and has relieved the MLA who invited Thatcher of some of his duties. To all of those who attended the speech from the throne, uh, to all members of this assembly, and to all of the people of Saskatchewan, I offer my unequivocal apology. Last week, when questioned by the media about this, Moe implied he didn't feel the need to personally apologize for Thatcher's appearance, but today, at the beginning of Assembly proceedings, Moe stood, telling the chamber he took time over the weekend to speak to residents and reflect, and calling Lyle Stewart's invitation to Thatcher a terrible error in judgment. He also stripped Stewart of his duties as Legislative Secretary effective immediately. But the government needs to do better. Um, the government needs to do better on uh, this entire, the, the entire topic of interpersonal and, and domestic violence in our province. Our statistics in Saskatchewan are not good, uh, and the government needs to lead on this front, and that starts uh, with myself. Meanwhile, NDP leader Carla Beck called Moe's apology well-crafted, but says it should have come sooner. She renewed calls also made in question period today for a commitment from the province to provide operational funding to second-stage shelters. A man from Summerland, B.C., who suffered a heart attack last year, credits the use of an AED for saving his life. And now, as Taya Fast reports, he's paying it forward to his community, hoping to save others, too. Summerland resident Al Clark is lucky to be alive and well. You know, I'm around because of those two angels. Clark suffered a heart attack while at his business last year and went unconscious. However, two nearby bylaw officers called 911 immediately and started CPR. But uh, we call them in Summerland two angels, you know, who came to, uh, to see me and they were uh, well trained. Uh, both started the CPR on me. 
So some oxygen was going uh, through my system. An ambulance later arrived with an automated external defibrillator, or also known as an AED, which successfully resuscitated Clark with a single shock. This is what saved my life. I'm here talking to you because of that machine. He is now paying it forward with an AED donation to the community. Oh, it's just, it's such a beautiful thing for him to donate something like this to the community. It is um, installed a $10,000 piece of equipment, state-of-the-art premium AED. And, you know, just to pay it forward for it like that to the community, it just warms my heart. The official donation was made on Friday and the stand has been installed in Memorial Park at the corner of Wharton Street and Kelly Avenue. For the proximity to downtown, we are one block away. It is the site of our, um, our feature playground destination park. We hold many community events, large-scale community events at this site and within blocks of this site. So it was really the perfect um, site to have this, you know, just at everyone's access. This machine, which is designed to be waterproof and highly visible, is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week year-round, and emits an alarm when opened. There are several AEDs in town that are in buildings. So I think the big kicker for, for people, if it's in the evening or late at night and a lot of those facilities are closed, you don't have access to them. The premium AED cost upwards of $10,000 to be installed, but Clark says it's worth it if it can save another life. This is a lifesaver because you, time is against you. This is, this is the problem. Time is against you. If you have the machine ready, uh, you know, close by uh, and uh, you, will, you will live. According to the district, this is the first public outdoor AED machine in the Okanagan, and if successful, Clark says he'll look into donating another one to the community. Tiff Askable News, Summerland. Well, kids are often eager to dive right into their Halloween candy stash, and health experts say it may not be as bad an idea as once thought. Fraser Health's Dr. Cheryl Young says Halloween is actually a great time to consider our relationship with food. She says by not treating candy as a reward, it empowers kids to take control of their eating. Experts suggest children sort their own candy and eat as much as they want for the first few days. Parents can then take over the loot and give the candy back at meals and snack time. I suppose that's if they don't eat it themselves. I'm, I wasn't looking at you when I said that. I know Will is going to get some help <laughs> with his stash tonight. That's for sure. Happy Halloween to everybody. Be safe out there. I'm sure they're hitting the streets right now. Also uh, coming up, a happy place for pug lovers. You know, like how some people get their kids dressed up for Halloween. They get their pugs dressed up for Halloween. A celebration of the lovable breed some say has a face only a mother could love. And set your phasers to stun for Halloween fun at the Provincial Legislature. Well, several MLAs got into the Halloween spirit today at the BC Legislature. Yellow and red. And you, interloper. <laughs> that is outgoing Premier and well-known Trekkie John Horgan dressed in a Star Trek costume and having a little fun with reporters. The science fiction series appeared to be a theme a lot of other NDP members dressed in Star Trek attire as well, and our cameras also caught a glimpse of characters from a galaxy far, far away. Two Darth Vaders had a friendly exchange in the legislature hallway, and I know if Sophie was there, yeah. she'd be dressed up in the Star Trek stuff too. Totally. <laughs> Live long and <laughs> prosper.
I can't help it. All right, meteorologist Yvonne Shell also in the Halloween spirit tonight because she's definitely at the right place for it uh, in East Vancouver, a haunted house raising money for a good cause, Yvonne. Very busy down here. The kids are out, and we've got a haunted pirate ship. And I'm joined by one of the pirates, Paul Etheridge. Uh, you've been doing this for several years. Tell us how long and a little bit about the walk and yeah, sure. We've been doing this uh, for, for 11 years now, uh, inspired by the movie Goonies. Um, it's just a, a fun sort of jump scare, walk-through attraction uh, for, for the kids. And it started off as a neighborhood thing, but now we're, we're getting people coming in from all over the place to see it. So it's, it's fantastic. There's a lot of kids. How many typically come and where does the money go towards and how can people get involved? So kids, anywhere from 800 to 1,200 on Halloween night. Uh, we raise money for the Bank of the Food Bank. Uh, all the money goes directly to them through their, their website. Um, you, can, you can find where to donate by Googling Vancouver Food Bank Pirate Ship, and that should take you there. Or you can come down and uh, enjoy the fun and use the QR codes that we have on site here and donate directly to the Food Bank. All right, anybody who's watching and wants to join, give them the location. Okay, so we're at 1114 Lily Street in Vancouver. Thank you so much, Paul. It's a great uh, turnout coming. tonight, and we're hoping that people can help you reach your goal of up to five thousand dollars. So thank you so much. All right, we're going to take a look at your trick-or-treating forecast. It's dried out just in time. We have a river that hit us hard over the weekend. We are looking at uh, the, the rainfall dry this evening. The potential low as we get in towards this evening maybe a few spotty showers but for most areas across. Okay, unfortunately, you can still see the weather graphics up there, but we lost Yvonne. Scary situation here on Halloween night. That was Vancouver Food Bank pirate ship. If you want to Google that, you will get a chance to see what they were raising money for. You'll be able to help them out. But uh, thankfully, did I, say that, did I say that right? Food Bank, yeah. Vancouver Food Bank pirate ship. Google that. You'll figure it all out. I uh, hope everybody's safe out there. It looks like a beautiful spot. Definitely. All right, we'll try to get her back if we can. But in the meantime, bars and pubs will be allowed to stay open longer during the World Cup. But don't expect to be able to order a pint while you're there. So disappointing. The province is extending operating hours during next month's tournament in Qatar. However, there will be no change to the hours of liquor sales. Many matches, of course, will be played in the very early morning, including at 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., Canada starts group play November 23rd against Belgium and kickoff for that game is at 11 a.m. Which is a much more reasonable hour. Yes, it is. 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. You got to be dedicated. A lot of people are. And they for sure are. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Squire is here now with a look ahead to sports. It's kind of like when the Olympics are in There's Asia no time. or things like that. Yeah. You have to stay up late. That's what you just do. Yep. Yeah, you just make up time. It's an experience. Uh, okay, the Canucks are hoping Quinn Hughes and Brock Besser can return in time for tomorrow's game with New Jersey. Besser has yet to score this year. He's been hurt ever since camp started, so he hasn't had a real chance to get himself going yet. And even though he was skating at practice, Besser is still likely to be a game-time decision at best against the Devils. Also tonight, hugs galore why these owners are gathering for Halloween coming up later. All right, we've got to get the Canucks 
on track. You know, they, well, they've won two in a row. Won two in a row, which is good. Things but, have changed. Yeah, since the last for the better. Talked last week. Yeah, well, much for the better. But we still need healthier Canucks, right? Well, that would help. Healthy would help. Uh, Quinn Hughes and Brock Besser, though, we're practicing with the Canucks this morning. We aren't sure if both will be able to play against Quinn's brother Jack and New Jersey tomorrow night. Hughes seems more ready to go. Besser still seems like he's a bit of a long shot to play against the Devils. He's getting close. Tomorrow I'd I, be a game time decision type thing, but uh, or you call it day to day, uh, whatever. But uh, uh, he's actually skating with the team, so everything's looking better for that. Now, defenseman Ethan Bear was at practice this morning. He hasn't played all season. Basically, when he was with Carolina, he was just waiting for a trade to happen, and it did finally happen, and the Canucks now have him, and they need a veteran defenseman considering how unlucky they have been with injuries so far. I think I move the puck well, I skate well, and um, I think I defend well as well. So I just try to um, honestly just come prepared and ready every night and uh, be physical and, and just, yeah, just try to move the puck as quick as we can. Obviously, I think there's D-men who can do the same here too. It's just, I think it's just a point of just working together, supporting each other, I think, um, and just making a simple play. It's, 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 it's cliche as it is, that's what works in this league, and um, I think we'll figure it out. Okay, so Nathan Rourke did survive his one quarter against Winnipeg last Friday. No issues with the foot, which means he should be good to go Sunday, 1.30, in the Western Final at BC Place against Calgary. Give us our first look in a long time at young Nathan Rourke. He started in the Lions' regular season finale in Winnipeg, and even though it was only a quarter of action following his return from injury, Nathan Rourke will be the starting quarterback when the Lions host the Calgary Stampeders in the Western semifinal on Sunday. He's going to start and play. It all went according to plan, so it was good. He got in the game. I think he got 16 plays. Um, that's kind of where about we wanted it to be. And um, I think he's just going to keep getting better as the, as the as time goes by. So um, he'll be he'll be ready to go and be uh, practicing full. Lucky Whitehead status for Sunday's playoff game won't be decided until midweek at the earliest. Whitehead re-injuring an ankle that's been bothering him on and off all season. It's not severe, but it's something that he's been dealing with for several weeks. He's just kind of got a chronic ankle issue going on. I call it chronic just because it's one of those things that has not healed up 100%. He's been in here a lot, man. He's been in here the last, the last few days quite a bit. And so we're going to take it day by day and see how it goes. So I can't tell you for sure that he's a go, but I can't tell you that he's not either. I think it's going to depend on... How well, uh, how well things go over the next couple days. One guy who is a go for the Western semifinal is Brian Burnham. On the Lions playoff beat, Jay Janower, Global Sports. I didn't we know we even had a Lions playoff beat, but Jay has put himself on it. Okay, uh, it should be a good crowd for the game on Sunday. They've uh, sold just over 20,000 tickets. They have about 1,000 left for the lower bowl, but the good thing with BC Play Stadium is you can take the cover off the seats in the upper decks the more tickets you sell, and that's what the Lions are going to do. So we're opening up the first 16 rows, basically goal line to goal line on both sides, and we're not opening up the, uh, the end zone and the upper bowls. And so um, and that's another about 10,000 seats, and if we uh, keep selling, we'll just keep adding it as we go, but that's sort of the first, the first step. Sunday, yes. 130. The uh, Seattle Seahawks continue to surprise. Their 27-13 win over the Giants yesterday moved their record to 5-3. A lot of people 
thought they wouldn't even win five games this season without Russell Wilson. But a post-game comment by Seahawks receiver Tyler Lockett after the win yesterday sounded like not having Russell Wilson is helping. Uh, well, I think the biggest thing is um, it's amazing what we can accomplish when nobody cares who gets the credit. You know, my high school coach used to always talk about that basketball coach. And when you look at this team that we have, I mean, we have a bunch of guys that are willing to buy in. When you look at the rookie class, like uh, they probably haven't said 500 words since they've been here. Like they just put their head down and work. That was Geno Smith and DK Metcalf with him. Now, what's happening with the Seahawks might be Pete Carroll's greatest coaching work ever in the NFL, even better than when he won the Super Bowl. Yesterday, he showed an ability to read and react to his players when he helped get Tyler Lockett out of his funk for dropping a touchdown pass and fumbling a ball close to his end zone. First down from the two, Smith quick toss to Lockett, and Lockett tossed down. Oh, down. Jackson, and the ball is out. And oh. Giants football at the two. That was the first of Tyler Lockett's ball-handling mistakes, and it led to a Giants touchdown. And it just got worse from there for Tyler Lockett, who rarely drops a ball if he's carrying it or catching it. Lockett has a step, and Lockett it! Enter Pete Carroll, who went over to Lockett to cheer him up and get his head back in the game. Yeah, I mean, when I dropped the pass, it was kind of one of those things where, you know, I couldn't believe I had just did that. I told him he's the best receiver I've ever seen. And, you know, you're going to do something. I can't wait. You're going to score twice. I know something's going to happen right here. And Pete was right. He did do something. Double move. Lockett on the sideline. In for the touchdown. Redemption. I mean, it really did mean a lot to me when he said that. He's one of the great players that ever played this game. And, and, he's, and so he's got high expectations for himself. And so, and I love him. And, and so I just, that's it. You know, just loved him up. Just like he deserved. See? Don't love on him. Hey. Spread the love. That's the answer, man. Sometimes love is the answer. It's always the answer. Yes. All right, thanks very much, Squire. Amazing. Thanks, Squire. What's cuter than a grumble of pugs? What is a grumble of pugs? Well, we'll show you next. <laughs> Julie Nolan is standing by with a look ahead to what's coming up tonight on Global News at 11. Julie? Yeah, Sophie, a special presentation for a little boy today after being hit by a car while on his way to school. 12-year-old Harley was on his bike when he was hit by a truck. He was dressed up as the Joker, and so paramedics had to cut through his costume to help him at the scene. And so later on, first responders made up for it in a big way this Halloween. We'll have that story and much more tonight coming up on Global News at 11. All right, looking forward to that. Thanks, Julie. Well, Halloween has positively gone to the dogs in one New Brunswick community. The 10th annual Pugapalooza was held this weekend, a Halloween party for pugs and their passionate owners. Global's Shelley Steves has more. They arrived at the dog park decked out in costumes by the wagon loads. I think they just have a face that only a mother could love. Right. Welcome to the 10th annual Pugapalooza in Moncton, where a pack of pugs, also known as a grumble, dressed up as everything from dancers to jailbirds. Even the three little pigs gathered with their gaggle of proud parents, not so mildly obsessed with their pets. 
you know, like how some people get their kids dressed up for Halloween, they get their pugs dressed up for Halloween. They love dressing their dogs up. It's kind of a weird thing. Look at all the Susan Reed drove almost two hours to take in the party of grumpy little faces. It's great to see everyone get together and all the variety of pugs. Come see mom. Oh, that's a good boy. That's so cute. Julie McCabe-Legier started the pug frenzy just over 10 years ago. This is the first time we've had it in since before COVID, and uh, we've had up to 75 pugs at some times. And it's impossible not to chuckle when you witness the chaos. Bella the pug, I love it. Which is why it only seemed fitting for New Brunswick's children's author, Jennifer McGrath, to be on site signing her latest book. It's about a pug who causes chaos in a dog-loving neighborhood, and ultimately brings everybody together. Togetherness and chaos. Yeah, that sounds about right. If nothing else, people can come here and have a, have a couple of hours full of smiles. And for some, it was a trip down memory lane. Our pug Bella left us in January, so we wanted to come check out all the running of the pugs today. Some owners so smitten, they're even starting to sound like them. She'd like to get one more, and uh, this is kind of helping her case. Oh, she's going to win that fight now. <laughs> she might. <laughs> Shelly Steves, Global News, Dieppe, New Brunswick. <laughs> A grumble of pugs. Very fitting. All right. Yvonne is out there. We've reestablished communication. And thankfully, those trick-or-treaters have stayed dry so far. Yeah, it's dry out here, and we're just in East Vancouver. We're at 1142 Lily Street. It's a haunted house. All the money, Paul Etheridge and his family put this together over the past 11 years. You can donate to the Vancouver Food Bank. You just need to look it up. So far, they've raised over $4,000. They're hoping to get to $5,000. So look them up online, and you can donate. Guys? Awesome. Very cute hat, too, Yvonne. Thanks for watching, everyone. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Good night, all.